Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that has influenced their own work. Um, and again, you may already know, a reminder, we are remote recording now, um, and I'm recording in my bedroom. Again, chicken may scream. The uh, leaf blowers might come out. I'm in Los Angeles. It's just part of the milieu. Um, the audio is likely going to sound a little bit different from our studios, but everything else is the same, except for also our guest is different. Uh, today, I'm very excited to have writer-director Sonjui Sina. Hi. Hi, April. So great to be here. Um, so uh, Sonjui is in New York, which is, um, you know, it's its, its own kind of uh, uh difficulty right now, but you seem to be doing well. I can see video of you and you seem bright and glowing and happy. I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah. It's a bit surreal and, you know, weird. We're in the epicenter and it feels like, you know, it feels like things are dangerous, but at the same time you can't see it. So yeah, it's a, it's a weird new reality we're all in. I mean, we're living in a genre film is the way that I feel. And this is like all of the worst case scenarios that we've been writing about. Cool, all right, wonderful. <laughs> exactly, we're living in a new noir. <laughs> So for those of you who are less familiar with Sonjui's work, please let me give you an introduction. Sonjui grew up in northern India until the age of 13. After a short stint at a British boarding school in the Himalayas, which that's like not even an entire sentence of this bio. That's just like a clause of things that we could go into. Uh, she packed her bags to join her parents in New York City and got her start working as a commercial film editor. She has edited several commercials for high-profile campaigns and won Gold Lions at Cannes, working alongside acclaimed directors such as Harmony Corinne and Spike Jones. But long form was calling her, so she produced and edited These Birds Walk and Homegoings, two award-winning documentary feature films that played at South by Southwest, Full Frame, and also True False, and a bunch of other places, and then garnered several international awards. Um, but her directing career began with a narrative short film. Love Comes Later, which was one of 10 short films accepted, accepted to the 2015 Cannes Film Festival. Then she was selected for Tribeca's Through Her Lens program, which many of our guests have been part of that, and everyone said it was awesome. Uh, she received a development grant from them to further uh, develop her narrative project, The Quarry. Now, she is the recipient of the Jerome Foundation Development Grant and TFI's IWC Award for her feature, Stray Dolls, a story about one petty crime spiraling into the next. The film stars Gitanjali Thapa, Cynthia Nixon, Rob Arameo, and Olivia de Young. It recently won a special jury mention for lead performance at Tribeca, and Sonjui was named one of IndieWire's 25 rising filmmakers to know in 2019. Although it's great to know her in 2020 as well. Um, so, Sonjui, the movie that you chose to talk about today is Drive. Can you give us a little explanation on why this one might be one of your fave genre films? Yeah. So, you know, um, another female filmmaker once said to me, films are more experience and less information. And I think Drive is one of the films that completely embodies it. It's mm -hmm. It completely seduces you in. Um, it takes the audience on a ride. No, pun, no puns intended. Um, the visuals... <laughs> you know, works so well with the sound. Um, one of my favorite aspects of the film is Cliff Martinez's score. I think I can watch anything with his score under it or just whatever he creates. He is such a fantastic composer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the visuals are really deliberate and really specific. The color palette, um, you know, the mise-en-scene, the choreography, the blocking. Um, and it, it's a classic neo-noir. Um, it, it's a classic film to examine when looking at neo-noir. But however, having said that, there are certainly a few elements that I find infuriating about the film. It's infuriatingly masculine and sexist and at times quite empty. I think it it falls into some of the cliches and the tropes of the genre as well. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's still a really important film to examine when looking at that genre. And Stray Dolls is a neo-noir. And, and so Drive was an inspiration, but as well as you know, I wanted to really subvert some of the things about that genre as I was creating Stray Doll. So it's an important part of me, but I also wrestle with it sometimes. So we can get into that for sure. Well, I mean, this is the place to talk about that. (laughs) So for those of you who haven't seen Drive, today's episode will obviously give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch, as always. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Drive first, this is your shot. Now let's introduce Dry with a short synopsis. Written by Hossein Amini and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn for release in 2011, Drive stars Ryan Gosling as stunt driver getaway driver, uh, the unnamed protagonist we call Driver. We meet him when his boss slash manager Shannon persuades some Jewish mob bosses to finance a car for Driver to race in. What do you got that the big professional race teams don't? I got the Driver. You just told me they had half a dozen drivers. Not like this one. This kid is special. Been working with him for a while. I've never seen anything like it. Meanwhile, Driver has some new neighbors, Irene, played by Carrie Mulligan, and her young son. I'm not doing anything this weekend. If you want to ride or something. Sparks might fly, but not before Irene's ex-standard, played by Oscar Isaac, gets home from prison. So Standard owes money and gets beat up by a gangster with the ultimatum of robbing a pawn shop to pay his debts. Want me to rob a pawn shop in the valley? Why? Because I owe him some protection money from when I was inside. It was 2,000 bucks. And as soon as I got out, oh, it's 5,000 bucks. Oh no, actually it's $10,000, $20,000. Tomorrow, I don't know what the fuck it's gonna be. Driver, out of concern for Irene and the kid, offers to drive for him because, you know, he's the best and they want it to go off okay. If I drive for you, you get your money. You tell me where we start, where we're going, where we're going afterwards. I give you five minutes when we get there. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours, no matter what. Anything a minute either side of that and you're on your own. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. You look like you're hard to work. Not if we understand each other. But the job goes awry. Standard's shot and killed, and Driver takes off with the gangster's inside person, Blanche, being tailed by a car. Blanche admits that they were actually going to re-steal the money. He said there would be another car to hold us up. But he didn't say anything about all this money. He didn't say anything about it. He didn't say anything about it. You were gonna rip us off? 
And that's kind of a bad omission because Blanche then gets murdered in a hotel room uh, because she's an accessory. But Driver escapes after killing someone. This is when shit goes really, really bad. Driver tracks down the gangster and uh, smashes his hand with a hammer. He tells Driver that the plan was hatched by those Jewish mob bosses who were going to finance Driver's car. Whose money do I have? <laughs> Don't worry, they're going to come get it. No, no. Call them. Somebody call Nino. They send a hitman after Driver to recover the money. Driver tries to convince Irene to come away with him. I just thought you could get out of here if you wanted. I could come with you. I could look out for you. In the elevator, however, Driver kisses Irene in a very romantic slow motion movement uh, before smashing the hitman's head in with a hammer. Uh, the Jewish mafia wants to off anyone associated with that heist because it would actually lead to the true owners of the money, the Italian mafia, um, and then back to the culprits. And they don't want the Italian mafia coming into their territory in Los Angeles. I'm going to tell you something. Anybody, anybody finds out you stole from the family. We're both dead. They try to torture Shannon into giving Driver's whereabouts, and he dies. Driver finds his body and goes mad. He dons a rubber mask and tracks one mobster down and drowns him in the ocean. Then meets the other to give back the money. Any dreams you have or plans or hopes for your future, I think you're going to have to put that on hold. For the rest of your life, you're going to be looking over your shoulder. I'm just telling you this because... I want you to know the truth. But that mobster stabs Driver, and Driver has to stab him to death. He goes back to the car, wounded, sits in the passenger seat, and breathes. Until maybe he isn't anymore. We don't know. <laughs> it is um, infuriatingly simple and also a very complex plot that somehow doesn't totally matter um, because it's so much more about feeling, as you were talking about. Um and I, you know, it's also uh, based on a novel, James Salas's Driver, but it's, it's, um, uh, uh, Hossein Amini took a lot of liberties with it to try to make something that was much simpler and more cinematic. We'll get into that later on. But I wanted to get into something specifically that I think that maybe your film might have some parallels with too. Um, the way that, Nicholas Wending Refn was talking about this film and designing it was that he he wanted to create a kind of mythological city. So people were saying like, oh, this is, you know, clearly um, inspired by Bullet or some other movies like that. And he's like, actually, it's kind of more grim fairy tales. He said, quote, Drive is more born out of the Grimm Brothers fairy tales more than anything else. The book that James Salas wrote is really great and unique, almost like a script. It's about the adventures within a sort of mythological city, and I wanted the film to feel like a fairy tale that the Brothers Grimm would write. It's much more in the vein of that material than anything else, end quote. So he's talking about a city that doesn't exist where everyone knows everyone, but they also don't know everyone. You know, it's, it's like it's possible to cross paths with people randomly. And I mean, it's it's a great kind of pretext for making a crime film because it, it complicates, you know, who you might meet, who you might run into, who would thicken the plot and, you know, make uh, some characters make some big choices. Um, did you ever think about that in terms of like creating your kind of ideal city for your script? Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting because I think not only does, you know, drive exist in this mythological city, but also the driver is somewhat of a mythological 
heroic character as well. And I think mm-hmm. both those things are kind of important in Stray Dolls as well. Stray Dolls takes place in Poughkeepsie, but really it could take place in any... I set it in a place that was like just outside of New York City. So mm-hmm. where you could, you knew that it was close, but it was never close. So mythological in, this, in the sense that like your dream is... You can kind of see your dream, but you can never actually attain it. And Yeah. There's almost like an Emerald City quality to that in the way that like you exist here and you can see it in the distance, but you may never get there. Yeah. And there's an actual metaphor that plays out as well with Niagara Falls. She, uh, the main character's dream is to go to Niagara Falls and to take, you know, her family there, to bring her family to the U.S. and take her family to Niagara Falls. And at the end, they end up at Niagara Falls, but we don't really know whether that's her dream or not. So there's that mm-hmm. mythological um, fantasy playing out as well. Um, the dreaminess of a dream that is actually not really achieved. And I think Nicholas Winden Refn talks about, he talked about the fact that Drive, he wanted to make Drive kind of like a dream that turns into a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a little bit, at the core of it, the essence of Stray Dolls as well. Um, the immigrant dream is not really a dream. It's it's now a nightmare. And so I was mm-hmm. sort of playing with those elements as well in Stray Dolls. And the fact that Riz is a bit of a mytholo- mythological hero as well. We don't know too much about her past. We don't go into a backstory of flashbacks. Um, and I was... I was interested in the neo-noir heroes, which are typically so masculine, and they are um, heroic in this male way. And I and that was the one thing that I wanted to subvert in Stray Dolls and, and make her a female woman of color um, lead to to subvert the whole genre. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's it's kind of mythological in in those in that duality. Um, but I wanted to to play with that specifically with an issue like immigration, and then a lead that we never see in a neo-noir thriller. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a kind of like a key in terms of longing, you know, like this this idea that you're longing for something, even if it may not exist, you know, that there's, there's, there's something inherently dramatic about that. And, and just, I think some great movies use that. Um, I, you were talking about your character who, we don't know much about and we have you know ryan gosling's driver who is you know a cipher in a sense and i I wanted to bring up this quote that uh, ruffin said he said quote he becomes what everyone else needs he represents their inner mirrors when they need a human being he's a human being when they need a hero he's a hero when bernie needs his nemesis he becomes his nemesis when shannon played by brian cranston needs his dream of buying a car with a driver he's his driver he's everything to everyone end quote and i think that's an interesting thing of you know like when i rewatch the movie with that in mind he is malleable as a character he becomes the kind of fantasy that everyone has and that's also not something that you see with most characters you know like that's a it's, i think it's a very uh, it's a very rare quality um especially you know outside of a kind of noir type of uh, sensibility but i i like that in terms of him supplying other characters with their motivations as opposed to um 
you know, him having any larger motivations. He just wants to like do right by some people. That's it. Yeah, but I think we've seen this in the noir genre. It's it's very much like the central character is this hero savior character who is mm-hmm. um, inevitably male and a white male at that. Um, we've seen, you know, the sort of Clint Eastwood type of hero or, you know, even in films like Les Samurai, like Alain Delon mm-hmm. type of heroes, and they're typically white men. Um, and so and so that was another part of my question watching Drive. Like, am I ever going to see, like, we can all sort of project these different um, emotions into a white male, but can we do that to a woman? And can we do that with a woman of color was my question as I was looking to sort of subvert the genre and create something new within it. Yeah. Can she be everything to everyone if she is already uh, stereotyped within the world that she lives in? Did you, I mean, like, did you find that difficult to convince people that? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I think, um, you know, I'm I'm a woman of color and an immigrant filmmaker, and I think if if a person like me is out to make a film with a central character that is a woman of color and an immigrant and um, undocumented, I think immediately you start to think that that's going to be a certain kind of film and it's going to fit mm-hmm. into a certain box, and it may be very. Um, it may be very gritty or documentary style or issue based or educational or you know or or a film where the audience is has a sense of pity for the character and mm-hmm. i wanted to to i i knew that box was really small and i wanted to break out of that box and really question these other elements as well. Like, what if this film is stylistic? What if she is a really flawed character? What if she kind of exists, you know, beyond the box of like, either very good or very bad, but somewhere in the middle where we sometimes uh-huh. empathize for her, but other times we're confounded by by her actions. And, and what if she kind of starts to take the place of the mythological hero that we're so used to seeing, who's typically a white man. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it's, I think it's also, I think what's interesting about films like Drive is that this white white male character can be violent, um, can be sort of, can do bad things, but yet like we're always going to see him as a hero and as a savior. But but yeah, I think with, with people of color, you know, creating characters that are, that are both that are flawed that are that have good and bad in them um, are rare. I think we're just sort of stepping into that territory where they can take the roles in the middle and not just like roles that are very good or roles that are Mm-mm. complete criminals. And so I think it's important to sort of create that uh, dimension and complexity for yeah for for women and for uh, women of color. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Drive and also Stray Dolls with uh, Sonjui Sina. And please come back. Hey, you've reached Dr. Game Show. Leave your message after the beep. 
Hello, this is Steve from Albany talking about my favorite podcast, Dr. Game Show. Dr. Game Show is a show where listeners submit their crazy ideas for game shows and the two hosts have to play them and they often bring in celebrities and small children to share in the pain and hilarity. At first it might seem like Joe Firestone has a contentious relationship with listeners, but that is only mostly true. She actually really respects us. It's a lot like Lethal Weapon where Joe is like, oh, listeners, you're all loose cannons. You're out of control. And we're like, no Firestone, you're too by the book. You forgot what it's like out there. And that's why I love the show. Listen to Dr. Game Show on Maximum Fun. New episodes every other Wednesday. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today from New York City. Sonjui Sina. Hi. Hi. <laughs> it's nice to nice to come back with you to talk about Drive. Um, so something that was very important to uh, Refn and all of his work is uh, what's behind the actor. He said, quote, most of the film is shot with wide angle lenses like Valhalla Rising and Bronson for that matter. Each movie, I want to see the background more than anything else, the framing of an image. I want you to see what's behind the actor, what's going on behind the character action, end quote. Um, and for him, that's, you know, just one part of framing is having a really, really specific mindset of, of having that depth behind them, that there is like something that they could go to, you know, like the, this idea that, that they exist within a world and they aren't just, you know, um, uh, apart from it. Yeah. I think there is definitely something in all of his work where you can't really come too close to the characters. They either don't have that depth in the script itself or Mm -hmm. it's in the mise-en-scene, the way that they're sort of, um, they're framed in wides or like you said, in almost like this tableau, like they're a piece of this bigger tapestry. Um, There are very few close-ups in Drive as well. um, And it just keeps all of us at at a distance. And I think what works at least in drive in a much stronger way than some of his other work is that it, again, it's like this mythological, it strengthens this idea of the mythological character even more and this mythical story. It's almost like Mm. a, it's almost like a fairy tale that he's, um, yeah, that he's spinning for us instead of really characters where you can dive in. Cause Stray Dolls has, a lot of close-ups, and I love close-ups. I think it was Cassavetes that said, um, there's there's no better landscape than the face. And mm. I really love that. I think I really love holding on close-ups, and, and that's that's one place where I really deviate um, from, you know, Nicholas Winden Refn's sort of um, body of work. Um, I, I love creating moments where there's no dialogue and we can just sort of move into this character and they're through their face and really take mm-hmm. it. Yeah. There's, I mean, it depends on, um, you know, how comfortable you are as a filmmaker with letting people get to know your characters. And he seems to be like, you're not ever supposed to know them, which almost feels like, it, you know, like it's very Danish in a sense, a kind of like, like a coldness, a closed off of just like, you know, like see them, see them where they are and make judgments from there. But I, I almost feel like, you know, when you get those close ups, 
you are reading the maps to their faces and you are kind of knowing and understanding and you see those kind of microscopic movements of their muscles in their face. And and there's just like so many cues that they're sending you. There's just like, oh, I know everything about this person now. <laughs> yeah, there are not too many close-ups except for that one moment where right after Ryan Gosling bashes the head in at the elevator scene and Carrie Mulligan's character is on the other side of the elevator and the door's about to close, there's like this close-up on Ryan Gosling's face where he almost looks like a child. And mm-hmm. and I thought that was really interesting. I mean, Ryan Gosling is such an interesting character uh, uh, actor. He's such an interesting act- actor. He He's not like a Christian Bale. Like, he isn't a character actor, but he... Mm-hmm definitely has ways of of building nuance with moving very few muscles in his face. And there's suddenly depth to that whole scene. Yeah. I mean, that's something that also, um, you know, Refn was just kind of struck by him and the way that he can use his face without, you know, trying. Um, He just has everything, you know, set there, especially with his eyes. He was very, very specifically um, into that. He said, quote, he is a Superman. As an actor, he has many talents, but one of the most unique is that he's one of the few performers who can say a thousand words without saying one word of dialogue. Expressed emotion just pours out of him without even doing anything. Very few people have been, have ever been given that ability. You can't count them on one hand, one hand, uh, you can count them on one hand, end quote. Um, and you know you can anyone can say they like or don't like Ryan Gosling, but he's he's done it in this movie, and he's done it in quite a few other movies where you know I think people actually cut back his dialogue because you don't need it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he's he's uh, and he's taken some interesting risks in his career as well, and and not taken the most um, expected path. So that's definitely worth respecting. Yeah, and in fact, you know, the reason that Refn thought that he could actually get this film made, um, you know, so I'll talk about this because, you know, Universal was doing a a very kind of fast and furious um, version of the movie. Hugh Jackman was supposed to be, yeah, $60 million, and the budget for this movie is $15 million. It's a very slim movie for these this level of uh, talent. Um, and in the fact that, like, he was able to make it because he said that he had the protection of his star. He said, Ryan insisted on me. What was good in my situation, like Borman's, you know, for his films, is that we worked under our own terms because we were under the complete protection of the star. Without that protection, the film wouldn't have ever even resembled the one that we made. I had a great first class experience in Hollywood. I arrived with the mindset ready to fight all the battles because I had heard all the horror stories. Maybe not every one of the producers always got what I was saying, but there was always support in the end and then once we were done suddenly there was can end quote so um, no i think that's so interesting that you know he had he had done pusher and all these um sort of violent uh genre films but all in the netherlands and and not a lot of americans were aware of him he had done bronson but yeah for for a star like ryan gosling to pick him out and sort of choose him to bring on to direct this movie for Universal is is really interesting. And if you put it in the context of of what it was supposed to be, like a Fast and Furious, then then it really then it really shines from that bar, mm-hmm. right? Because you expect these car chases, but there are actually only two car chases in the whole movie. Um, you expect the violence to just start happening from the get-go, but the first really violent scene doesn't come till the first hour, which, yeah. which is also like, 
you know, the, the old noir versus the new noirs. Um, structurally, in the old older noir films, the violence would sort of be slow. It would be a slow burn, uh, mm-hmm. simmering plot that sort of led to the first violent violent act maybe in the first hour um or so and there wasn't a lot of violence and then now it's just about you know these quick cuts a lot of technology a lot of violence and and that's the new genre film right so i i really appreciate that the, it has that slow burn quality which i really love i really love sort of building things at a slower pace and like blood simple is another one of my favorite noir films which does yeah. that as well it's like it just really simmers on um this undercurrent of you know suspense and violence up until it actually happens i i wonder you know if you're trying to do something where you're prolonging that that violence and you know um if you get if you get notes where they're just like well maybe something should happen every 10 pages that's like <laughs> you know <laughs> No, it's so interesting because I am at the uh, at the moment I'm working with my co-writer Charlotte, who we wrote we wrote Stray Dolls together, but we're working mm-hmm. on um, a TV show that's set in the world of the motels, so the same world as Stray Dolls, which we're so familiar with because the short film was also set in a motel. Um, and you guys are like doing a thing, <laughs> like you're really into this. We're a bit obsessed with motels at this point. Well, I sort of became obsessed with motels because. 60 to, 70 to 80% of the motels in the U.S. are owned by Indian Americans or yeah. Eastern European immigrants. And yeah. it's such an interesting metaphor for the way that immigrants are resuscitating a foreclosed America because mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s, the motels were the place to go. That's where middle-class American white families would have their vacation. And and then they start to go under and all these immigrants were coming in and they were being discriminated against. So they started to like buy the motels and revive them. And I, I just find that really fascinating that they've like revived this American icon um, and this American cinematic icon, too, because I find them so cinematic. The colors are already there. You don't have to do too much to like make mm-hmm. something noir um, and have a lot of shadows, have a lot of darkness. Um, and that sort of like filters into the characters as well inside because most of the motels are sort of full of outsiders in America anyways. And and so when I thought about doing a story about outsiders in America, the most cinematic place inevitably were the motels. And so yeah, so this this show we're creating the show now that's also uh, going to be set in a in a motel and the pace of it is is different from a feature or a short and and those are exactly the conversations we're having of like not having everything happen in the first ten minutes but how mm-hmm. to like slowly simmer conflict and reveal character and build character slowly so that like by episode three there's a moment of big violence and it's completely justified it's earned and it's um you know we're we're really with the character as we get to that point um we're going to take another break when we come back we'll get further into drive and then also into straight dolls and maybe some more of the motel show (laughs) so please come back and join us Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host One Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting. Whether you are a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. I don't know how to fix mornings for myself. (laughs) 
I do not know how to make mornings okay for myself. So the t-shirt, I don't do mornings, yes. isn't even a funny shirt. I no. shouldn't get it for you. It's sad. It's a sad shirt. Yeah, it's a sad shirt with tears flowing. So join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great job. Find us on MaximumFun.org, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Sonjui Sina from New York City, and we are talking about Drive. So let's get into something that we've kind of uh, talked about a little bit, but haven't gone into detail yet. Um, so Nicholas Winding Refn said about cutting out dialogue, quote, when I handed out the shooting script about a week before we started shooting, it was like 81 pages. By the time I was done shooting, it was like 60 pages. I just kept taking out dialogue, all because Ryan had a really good perspective. He said it would be interesting if the driver doesn't talk unless he's asked something specific, end quote. That's a lot of pages to be taking out. In the meantime, um, uh, Hossein Amini was living with um, Nicholas Winding Refn, along with um, Ryan Gosling, Carrie Mulligan, um, Refn's entire family, um, and uh, the editor. And so Hossein was in the attic writing the entire time, and he would come down and be like, okay, this is what I have, because they were making changes so, so fast. But he was, you know, cutting out the fat constantly on set. Like, we don't need this, we don't need this. Which is funny, because I think a lot of people will end up doing that more in post-production than they're doing in in the moment. Because I think that the impulse is to want to get things so you might have options. But he's actually removing options away from him, which may or may not make the edit easier. But uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And, and the kind of rearranging of a script in the moment when you realize that uh, you have too much or you have too little or anything in between. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, Drive could have probably lost even more dialogue than, <laughs> than, than they did cut out. Make it a silent film, you know? <laughs> no, just because, like, you know, Nicholas Winden Ruffin is so fantastic at doing mise-en-scene, at doing the sound, and it's also evocative that it, it actually speaks in much more volume than the dialogue um does on the script um mm -hmm. but anyways that's another story um i yes i i agree with like just just cutting and slashing as much as possible i mean coming from you know a decade of editing as an editor i sort of have I don't really have a preciousness uh, for mm -hmm. holding stuff. I was cutting on set um, and cutting dialogue all the time. Um, and then in the edit, we actually took out like 15 scenes or something like that. We, we chopped off like 40 <laughs> minutes of the film. And I think still watching it, I think it could have been even even tighter. We could have lost another eight minutes. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I do think like less is more and if and if a silent image can say you know something much more than like three pieces of dialogue then then use that. I really love silences in films and that's that's one thing that I that I love about Drive as well. There are moments that are quite really quiet and really silent especially for like a genre film. Um mm -hmm. But yeah, we were we were cutting on set. We were cutting in the edit room. I think because it was my first feature, I did come from this mindset 
that, you know, I, I might as well get everything I can while I'm here for 21 days. So I think I was a bit less ruthless in, in cutting stuff on set. But I know for my second feature, I, I, I probably would be cutting much more. And I am usually editing in my head as I'm shooting as well. Um, I bring that editorial eye on set, which I think helps. I'm usually trying to cut the scene three different ways and mm -hmm. shape it, shape the emotion and shape the performance in in a range. And when I feel like I have that range, I move on as opposed to laboring something out um, until mm -hmm. the cows come home. So yeah, that editing process is, is I think key and it comes from experience. And the more you're on set, the more you know what you can lose. Yeah. Cause you've, you've spent like a, another lifetime wishing that maybe a director had gotten a shot that you need <laughs> to cut something together, which my husband is an editor. And so I hear that quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the number of times I had a conversation with a director to get a certain shot or make a shot list for them or, or you know, just tell them mm -hmm. that what you shot is actually useless. We needed a close up. Um, <laughs> I can't even I can't even count those moments, but um, it, it's a, it's definitely an asset taking it on on set. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about the low budget in locations because you already brought it up. So I want to get further into this because um, there's a specific rules that Refn seems to have when he's working on a low budget. He said, quote, Ryan drove me around mostly at night and showed me all the locations in the book. Based on these night drives, I basically decided where I wanted to shoot. I didn't have the option of using a lot of locations, and we had six and a half weeks to shoot the movie, so I had to be very specific. I used my low-budget formula, which is to choose three main locations. In this case, it was downtown, the valley, and Echo Park. I didn't know any of these places, but I came to know them very well before shooting. We would go back to them again and again. We made a point of living near them as well, end quote. Um, so for him, it's like the key of just like the magic three of just, well, you don't have much money. So here are your specific geographical spots. And then each one has a certain kind of emotion or feeling or something attached to it, whether it's like a character's spot or a, um, or a, a, a specific kind of story turning moment. That's interesting because we only had three locations as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the script was 90 pages, 80 pages were in a motel. And mm -hmm. I specifically constructed a story where a lot of it took place in one location so that I could really galvanize the time with my actors and spend time on performance. I really wanted to focus on that. Um, so 80 pages, we were just at the motel, which was you know, efficient and cheap and easy for the crew. Um, and then we had two other locations, which we traveled to. But um, I think it's so important to be efficient with, um, you know, with, with your budget, or at least like, by efficiency, I mean, knowing what's important to you. Like, for me, it was performance um, and, and getting to, you know, work with this cast in really... Um, saying something about outsiders in America, like that was like the core of it. And I think if you mm -hmm. know what the core essence of your story is, then you can get rid of some of the bells and whistles like, oh, we don't need, a, you know, the study cam for four days. We can do it for two days and be done. And so we, we cut out of a lot of uh, that extra noise and then you allocated that money more specifically towards nailing story elements and nailing character and... And, and the things that were important. 
you know, you brought up how long your script is and, and the kind of like paring it down to that particular type of uh, the emotions that you need. Um, but Ruffin has this opinion about um, 90 minute movies. And I wanted to, to bring this up because I'm, I'm curious. I have a very similar opinion. I think it's, you know, it makes sense. Quote, the script is 80 pages. It's all about getting to the point. 90 minutes is our dream cycle. It's a great pulp length, a great length for noir and classical Hollywood. I don't know why the 90 minute length interests me, but all of my films are around that running time. I also like short novels and fast songs. On the other hand, I don't have a short attention span. To the contrary, I used to play with Legos a lot, uh, and I still do, so I can spend a lot of time looking at something. I actually want to exercise as much control as I can over my material, and my calculation is that the shorter and more compact the material is, the better I can control it. It then becomes more about it and less about me, end quote. Um, I think that last part might be the key, you know, like, sure, sure, like, you know, our dream cycle is 90 minutes. I, I don't know. Like maybe maybe it's a biological impulse that we have that like we want these, you know, uh, very specifically timed movies. But I think about him being able to exert control over a movie makes sense, um, especially if he's working on lower budgets. But it it becoming more about the movie and less about him makes sense to mm. me. No, and I think there's something to the whole dream cycle thing too. It's it's because it's the REM cycle that's 90 minutes. And I've had this, my dad is uh, is actually a neurosurgeon, was a neurosurgeon and now is a neurologist. So, and he observes um, sleep cycles and seizures. Typically when I write, I set alarms for 90 minutes as well. So that, because uh, my attention span will run out. Yeah, so I so that ninety minute thing that I think there's something to it, and for Stray Dolls, we were in the editing process trying to get it as close to a ninety as well, and it's ninety four minutes at the moment. Um, so there is something to that, but also this whole idea of losing yourself so that um, you let the work shine and let the story shine in your characters is definitely the the whole the you know, the probably the most important mm-hmm. um, thing to take away as a director. I'm really there for everybody else to do their job and do it really well to inspire them all to bring out their best work. It's not really about me at the end of it. It's, you know, it's about, it's about the creativity of so many people coming together and, and telling a story together. I mean, that's funny. That's actually what he said in a quote that I found where he was just like, your job as a director is not to know everything and and to specifically inspire the people around you to do the best that they possibly can. Um, and, you know, I like the idea that doing um, doing a movie that's 90 minutes is almost like a sprint where you don't have too much time to think about it or to overthink it, to try to be so creative where it's just like, oh, and then this shot and this shot and this shot where like it may not service the story. It may just be making things cooler as opposed to feeling what we were talking about before, um, a movie about feeling. And, and I, I kind of I kind of enjoy that. I want to thank you so much for joining us today from New York. And uh, can you tell people how they can see your work? Sure. Thank you for having me. This has been such a blast. Um, Stray Dolls is out on Amazon Prime and iTunes and SVOD and all kinds of streaming platforms. So I hope you guys can check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Uh, We've been doing something a little different. Uh, I've been giving a recommendation of a film directed by a woman at the end of every episode. I do try to theme them. Um, Hopefully you guys have some time to check this one out. Um, This one is Alice Winokur's thriller Disorder. Um, It is starring the actor who I love, who I have such a hard time pronouncing his name, but it's Matthias Skonartz. Um, I love him in this movie and it is really kind of sensitively directed. It's about a guy who has PTSD who is protecting this woman who is the wife of a mobster and it's a, the woman is played by Diane Kruger. Uh, whom I also love. And the the film is just beautiful in terms of sound design, editing, all of that. It's gorgeous. And I love seeing what a, a thriller, like a crime thriller directed by a woman is when a man is the, the, the lead subject of it. But if you want to let us know what you think of the show today, you can tweet us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. Somebody call Nino. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.